Ladies and gentlemen, hello. I'm Andrew Roberts, the Roger and Martha Mertz Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and I'd like to welcome you to my new podcast, Secrets of Statecraft. The title derives from Sir Winston Churchill's reply to a young American who asked him for some life advice as Churchill was walking through Westminster Hall on the day of the Queen's coronation in 1953. Study history, study history, Churchill said, for therein lies all the secrets of statecraft. I've been an historian for 30 years and have written or edited 18 books, and in this podcast series, I'll be talking to prominent people about the role that history has played in their careers and their decision-making, and also to fellow historians about how the past influenced the people they've written about. In the course of it, I hope to eke out some of the timeless secrets of statecraft. The faux pas has had a long and interesting history, and its foremost historian is the author and broadcaster Christopher Buckley. Christopher, how did you first begin your scholarly interest in the subject? Well, I, I, I have to start by saying having a, a historian of the caliber of Andrew Roberts calling me a historian is about as good as it gets. So I think I'm going to retire right after this podcast. Um, my scholarly, indeed historical, interest in faux pas was prompted by a, a very embarrassing moment some years ago. I <clears throat> I ran into a, uh, a friend of the family, a very distinguished uh, fellow. Uh, well, I can say his name, uh, Bill Simon. He, he was in uh, Richard Nixon's cabinet. And I said to him, oh, how's Carol? Uh, referring to his wife. He, his face sort of went opaque. He said, uh, she died three years ago. <laughs> and, you know, where do you go from there? <laughs> I mean, hurriedly to, to the nearest exit so you can bash your head against a wall. and that's a, that's a good one. But your father, uh, William F. Buckley, he beat you in that department, didn't he? Oh, he did indeed. Uh, my, my late beloved dad was always one-upping me. Uh, but in this case, I was I was very happy to be one up. He asked a friend of his how his wife was. The friend replied, you were a pallbearer at her funeral three years ago, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a major league. Whoops. <laughs> now, tell me, as, as the historian of the faux pas, where does the phrase originate? Well, as I, I imagine our audience already uh, knows, it's uh, French. Uh, it's it's not a it's not a term Americans use very much, which seems to me a shame, because uh, saying "Oh dear, I've made a terrible faux pas" sounds rather more elegant than "Man, did I just step in it?" It's uh, <laughs> it's it's cousin term uh, gaff is also of French coinage. It's from the French word for boat hook, appropriately enough. The dictionary defines it as an unintentional remark causing embarrassment to the speaker. Uh, one uh, Washington pundit, Michael Kinsley, memorably defined a gaffe as, quote, when a politician accidentally says the truth. So it's really quite <laughs> rare in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, during the good old days of Watergate, the uh, the White House press secretary was constantly having to say the president misspoke himself. 
this, this struck me as a, a, as a terribly awkward coinage because it, it made it sound as though the president had just wet himself. Uh, but then I, I suppose one way or the other, he had. The, the, the faux pas, it's not the same as a Freudian slip, is it? Ah, the eponymous Freudian slip. That's when the id climbs up the esophagus, grabs hold of the uvula, and swings out your mouth, causing faces all around to turn red, mostly yours. Uh, Freudian slips can be very awkward. One of my, I guess, my one of my favorite large-scale Freudian slips occurred at the 1980 Democratic Convention. President Jimmy Carter was trying desperately to make nice with the Democratic establishment, and he was lavishing praise on former Vice President Hubert Horatio Humphrey. So rising to his crescendo, Mr. Carter asked the audience to join him in an ovation to Vice President Hubert Horatio Hornblower. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Carter, he was a you know former Navy man, and he was turns out he was a a C.S. Forrester fan, and he looked <laughs> the look on his face of total bewilderment as his audience convulsed in birth was uh, <laughs> was a memorable moment in politics. On the other hand, I, I would point out that Vice President Hubert Horatio Humphrey himself had once memorably put his foot in a big pile of donkey do when, in a speech, he declared. No sane person in the country likes the war in Vietnam, and neither does President Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Um, (laughs) As well as uh, as well as presidents, uh, courts and and royalty—they're they're they're full of um, minefields for this uh, this full step, this faux pas, aren't they? Oh, major, major minefields, courts and palaces are strewn with the corpses of those who have misstepped. There are just so many ways to put your foot wrong at court. The French even had to invent a term for just this category of faux pas, les majestés. Those who commit les majestés are, could be called les miserables. For, uh, for me, the most dramatic modern instance, I think, of les majestés was the eulogy given by Princess Diana's brother at her funeral in Westminster Abbey. Uh, eloquent it undeniably was, but its essential message to the royal family, who, being the royal family, had front row seats, was you were A, horrible to her, and B, you have her blood on your hands. That must have caused a bit of butter clenching in the royal pews. I mean, not since Mark Anthony extolled Brutus for being an honorable man has there been such an artfully subversive uh, funeral oration. Whatever one's views about Diana, one might ask, is it appropriate to diss the queen in her own church during a funeral? Now, to be sure, royals themselves aren't exempt from putting their expensively shod feet wrong. Prince Andrew got <laughs> Prince Andrew got, managed to get himself demoted and banished from public duties by giving that disastrous TV interview, which consisted of wall-to-wall faux pas. He, uh, he seemed to find it bewildering, even inexplicable, that people found his found inappropriate his his friendship with a convicted sex trafficker. And moreover, he had 
quote, no recollection at all of the 17-year-old girl in the photo, the one his arm was around. Uh, Andrew's nephew, Harry, uh, now living the quiet, simple life of a Montecito, California chicken farmer, attended, a, you'll remember, attended a costume ball once and thought it would be jolly good fun to dress up as a Nazi stormtrooper, complete with swastika armband. <laughs> you know, if, if only he'd had a Jeeves to be there to cough softly and say, uh, if I might suggest, sir, not the swastika armband. Uh, Harry's father, the uh, future King Charles III, uh, sometimes uh, is known to step in it. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I'll tell you a story. A friend of mine I'll call Dimitri, uh, who is in fact actually not Russian, but uh, let's call him Dimitri, was at a wedding luncheon at Buckingham Palace once, and he and his wife were going through the reception line. Well, Prince Charles and Dimitri were friends. But the prince had never met Dimitri's wife. So the prince greeted Dimitri with a, a roguish wink-wink and said, Ah, Dimitri, I hear you've become a very good friends with, let's call her, Vanessa. The lady in question was the very attractive sister of Dimitri's wife. <laughs> the wife's, that is, the wife standing right next to him in the receiving line. Uh, Dimitri tried frantically <laughs> to signal his royal highness <laughs> with eyeball semaphore. So this is really not an ideal subject of conversation at present company. But the royal re receptors weren't working uh, very well that day. And, yes, the Prince of Wales said, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I hear you're having a very good time with her indeed. Dimitri was reduced to croaking, uh, Sir, may I present my wife? And Charles said, Oh, God, said the future Queen of England. Now I've gone and put my foot in it again. Well, what, what struck Dimitri after, after his wife struck him was that, again, if, if Charles does this sort of thing all the time, the reign of Charles III is going to be fun to watch. <laughs> and fortunately, there is one member of the royal family who constitutionally never makes faux pas, isn't there? Uh, indeed. Uh, her, her Majesty, to whom I, I send greetings on her uh, platinum, or is it titanium platinum. jubilee? No, no, no. Very glad. <laughs> That's the next one. That. That's the 100th, is the titanium. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I send uh, Her Majesty uh, all, all, my, all my best wishes on this. And I'm very, we're all, of course, delighted that she's uh, uh, rid of the COVID. Uh, she's, uh, uh, she is a, uh, a, a, a paragon. Of, of sense sensitivity, uh, Her Majesty. And uh, one of my favorite stories is in the early 1980s, Lech Walesa, the remember the heroic Polish leader of the Solidarity Movement, came to Buckingham Palace for dinner. And artichokes were served. Well, <laughs> Mr. Walesa had never seen an artichoke. It was not an item commonly found on the menu at the Gdansk shipyard cafeteria. So he began to eat the leaves whole, spine and all, probably thinking, strange people, these English. Uh, Her Majesty stepped right in and said, why don't you just eat the bottom part? It takes so long to eat the leaves. 
delightful. I suppose that's what you call noblesse oblige, isn't it? Uh, her great-grandfather, Edward VII, had that too, didn't he? He did indeed. He did indeed. Uh, the Shah of Persia came to dine at Buckingham Palace on one occasion, and asparagus was served, a, a legume apparently unknown to the occupant of the peacock throne. The Shah ate the tip of each spear, then tossed the stalks over his shoulder onto the floor behind him. The footman didn't know what to do. Uh, Julian Fellows could probably turn that into an entire episode of Downton Abbey. <laughs> uh, but uh, King Edward came to the rescue. He started tossing his asparagus spears over his shoulder onto the floor, and soon everyone at table was following suit. Uh, as my fellow historian, Andrew, I'm sure you agree with me that it's a tragedy that no photograph exists of this memorable meal. <laughs> The pile of asparagus tips behind the uh, behind the monarchs. Um, <laughs> aren't um, mispronunciations uh, a uh, a long established source of faux pas? Yes, they they can be. Mispronunciation can lead to all sorts of trouble. This happened memorably to a, a Mrs. Stuyvesant Fish. Uh, only P.G. Woodhouse could have come up with that name, but she was actually a real person. She was a great uh, 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 grand dame of the Gilded Age in New York and in Newport, Rhode Island, where people went in summer to be rich together. Uh, and the occasion was a costume ball. They, they loved to dress up those Gilded Ages. So on entering the ballroom, Mrs. Fish whispered the theme of her costume to the embayeur, that's the, the guy with the pole who would bang it on the floor to announce arrivals. Uh, the theme of, of Mrs. Fish's costume was a Norman peasant. Well, the embayeur uh, seems to have misheard. He banged his staff on the floor and announced in a booming voice to the creme de la creme of Newport, Mrs. Stuyvesant Fish, an enormous pheasant. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you love to have been there? Which, <laughs> you'd never talk about anything else for years, would you? It'd be the standard, no, that, standard gag. Ten years. <laughs> um, <laughs> which brings us on to the fact that appearances can deceive, can't they? And they're also, uh, they can also Appearance. lead to a rich source of faux pas. Appearances can indeed be uh, tricky. Robert Benchley, you remember him, the great wit, a member of the Algonquin Round Table, with uh, along with Dorothy Parker and others. He was he was leaving the Twenty One Club in New York one night. It had it been a bibulous evening, as evenings <laughs> at Twenty One tended to be. He saw a, a man heavily decorated in gold braid. And assuming he was the doorman, told him to call a cab. Well, the <laughs> extravagantly braided man re replied rather huffily, I'll have you know, sir, I'm an admiral. Oh, then she said, well, in that case, call me a battleship. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, um, I love that story. The, 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 the dressier the occasion, it seems the, the greater the potential for uh, uh, a faux pas disaster. And uh, you may remember uh, the, uh, in, in, well, in 1966, British Foreign Minister George Brown was at a state dinner in Vienna. 
And Mr. Brown had enjoyed his wine, as he was uh, famously wont to. So the, the orchestra struck up a tune, and he turned to the exquisite creature in red, seated next to him, and said, Madam, you look ravishing, may we dance? The <laughs> exquisite creature in red replied, No, Mr. Brown, for three reasons. First, this is a state dinner, not a ball. Second, that's the Austrian state anthem, not a waltz. The third, I am the Cardinal Archbishop of Vienna. <laughs> Would have loved to have been there, too. No, you know, uh, yeah, appearances can, can deceive. In the 1930s, a uh, uh, dinner was given in honor of Wellington Koo, another P.G. Woodhouse name, but in fact, a real one. He was Chiang Kai-shek's foreign minister. Uh, Ku was a highly educated, deeply erudite man. He was fluent in seven or eight languages. Well, the woman, the lady seated next to him looked at him and, and began the conversation by asking, Chinese men come far in Boti? Uh, Ku decided to have some fun, so he just he nodded and smiled. And she carried on this way all through dinner, explaining to him how to use a knife, fork, a finger bowl, <laughs> napkin, all the rest. Ku merely responded with more nods and smiles. And when it came time for the toasts, he rose and gave a brilliant disquisition, a uh, tour, uh, tour d'horizon of all the major issues of the day. And sat down and said to his dinner partner, you like his speechy? <laughs> <laughs> Superb. Superb put down. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> some, sometimes people actually create faux pas, even when they're just trying to be polite, don't they? Indeed, indeed. It, it, uh, it's unfair, but, but it happens. Life is often unfair that way. It happened uh, when I was working in the Reagan administration. Mrs. Walter Annenberg, was, uh, had, had, she served with great distinction as the U.S. Chief of Protocol at the State Department, and uh, she's the, you know, the chief of protocol is the one who welcomes foreign visitors. And she caused quite a stir by greeting Prince Charles at Andrews Air Force Base with rather a deep curtsy. And uh, she was only trying to be uh, courteous, you know, poor dear, but there were howls of Republican small R uh, protest, as it was pointed out that our country had fought a war to earn the privilege of not having to bow, much less scrape before royalty. Uh, by the way, Annen I never know what scrape means. Everyone says bow and scrape. I know what a bow is, but we didn't used to have to, or indeed any day now, scrape before royalty, well, we'll unless you know Ju what scrape means. I'll, I'll defer to Julian <laughs> Fellows on that yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, Julian will know. Julian will know what the scraping bit was all <laughs> about. Exactly. exactly. No, no, no. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Carry on about Mrs. Walter Annenberg. Well, there's actually a moment in, in Brideshead Revisited when, you remember when Andrew Anthony Blanche shows up at Charles Ryder's uh, opening of his painting, and he's stopped by a woman at the door, and he goes into a riff. He says, I have not come here to scrape acquaintance from Lady Celia. One can imagine Sam Grass, but Mr. Sam Grass also probably scraped quite a bit in that book, didn't he? <laughs> 
Back to Mrs. Walter Annenberg, uh, Chris. Well, she she resigned shortly uh, after. Poor thing. I, I, I imagine she her thoughts as she got on her uh, her private plane to go back to to Palm Springs was you can was a rather unprotocolish. You can take this job and shut it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I once uh, I once made a, a it wasn't a faux pas actually. It was it was something that she that uh, Lady Di um, talked about people making faux pas where they uh, in long lines um, the the gentleman when introducing his uh, his wife. Would um, she would go first and curtsy, and then the man, overexcited and, and nervous, would um, would curtsy too, <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 uh, and Princess Diana told me that <laughs> over lunch one day she said she said it was the most difficult thing about being a royal was to keep a totally straight face because there were often <laughs> photographers present, of course, and the person did not want his one moment, you know, with the Princess of Wales to be uh, an utterly humiliating one. So, so, uh, so she had to keep a totally straight face. Uh, and she, and, and she uh, had a, a great sense of humour too. So she did have a great sense of humour. Doubly hard. And, she, and I said to her, is it difficult to do? And she said, well, have a go. So I got up from the lunch table and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and curtsied to her. And she gave me eight and a half out of ten. I'm rather <laughs> proud of that. <laughs> Does a photograph exist of that? Because it no, doesn't think no, it should, be, it should be the jacket <laughs> photograph on your next book. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, uh, diplomacy is a, as we've already mentioned, the foreign uh, minister, uh, George Brown, but it's a rich theme from which to mine the faux pas, isn't it? Well, diplomacy is in a way sort of, you know, the highest uh, stage of all. Uh, even, you could even even in, in ways higher than, uh, you know, uh, a palace court, because everyone's watching. In, in, uh, in 2000, uh, then-German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder uh, visited Israel. This was the first official visit to Israel by a German leader. So it was a bit of an exercise in walking on eggshells, as you can imagine. The, but the visit went very smoothly. <laughs> until the Chancellor's visit to uh, Vad Yashem, the uh, memorial to the six million Jewish victims of the Nazi Holocaust. And when the moment came for for him to turn up the eternal flame, he turned the switch the wrong way, extinguishing the flame. (laughs) So you you can imagine, you can just imagine the... It was sort of a combination ach du liebe and oi vey <laughs> moment. Uh, a more, uh, a funnier instance, I think, at least for me, is was the, uh, I'm sure you remember, Andrew, being a fellow historian, Jose Mara Velasco Ibarra, five times president of Ecuador. You remember him, of course. Thank you so much for reminding me of that. Yes, <laughs> yes, fact, of course I, I, I knew that. Of course I knew. You wrote a book on him, I think. I'm pretty sure I have. <laughs> about to. I'm mind. just about to. Researching it at the moment. <laughs> well, you'll have to research diligently because he was five times president of Ecuador. He was constantly being deposed. <laughs> and on one occasion, he showed up at an embassy reception accounts vary he that he either urinated in the punch bowl or threw up <laughs> on the west german ambassador 
<laughs> in one version, he managed both, scoring a, a diplomatic perfecta, I guess. Uh, the army promptly deposed him again for having compromised the dignity of the Republic. <laughs> and then there's uh, our, uh, our beloved uh, Gerald Ford, uh, President Ford, who inherited the White House, you know, after the years of agony of Watergate. He was, uh, Jerry Ford was one of the most honorable and decent men ever to occupy the, the Oval Office. But yet today, he's largely remembered for faux pas, literal and verbal. The literal instance came while he was disembarking Air Force One in Salzburg. He put a foot wrong and tumbled down the rain-slick ramp, providing endless comic material for the new television show, Saturday Night Live. Remember, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. Well, Mr. <laughs> Ford's stumble was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was so ironic. Here was a man who had attended the University of Michigan on a football scholarship. He, and there he covered himself and his team in gridiron glory. He, they, he led the Wolverines, the, that was his team, to undefeated seasons and, and national titles. And he eventually uh, got some payback at his uh, Saturday Night Live tormentor uh, at the uh, Washington Correspondents' Dinner. He was, Mr. Ford was making his way to the podium. And he paused and turned and yanked Chevy Chase's tablecloth out from under his, his dinnerware, spilling it all onto his lap. And he said, I'm Gerald Ford, he grinned, and you're not. <laughs> might, uh, might President Ford's verbal mishaps have had serious political repercussions, though? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, uh, uh, his, in, in fact... It's it's quite possible that uh, his the his verbal faux pas may have actually cost him re-election. He was <clears throat> he was debating his challenger, Governor Jimmy Carter, and uh, the subject of East Germany and, and the Soviet Union came up, and, and Mr. Ford declared, and I quote, "There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration." Well, this probably came as news in Warsaw. And Lech Walesa probably choked on his artichoke. Uh, anyway, a year later, uh, karma is really a, an amazing thing. President, now President Jimmy Carter was in Warsaw to give a well-intentioned speech. Uh, the faux pas in this case was provided by his State Department translator who had Mr. Carter telling the Poles that he, quote-unquote, desired them carnally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, poor Jimmy Carter, you know, he was probably the most chaste president in American history, but he, he always seemed to be in a state of lust. <laughs> the French, um, who, as we established earlier, invented the phrase faux pas, they're also pretty good at committing them themselves, aren't they? Ça va sans dire, which is, uh, I believe that's French for you can say that again. The, uh, the Duc de Richelieu was a great friend of King Louis XV. Uh, one of his many titles was Gentleman of the Bedchamber. That's what a great title. Anyway, one day the Duke opened the wrong door at Versailles 
only to discover the Duchess de Richelieu, that's his, his wife, in bed with another member of the court. He said nothing, just quietly closed the door. Later, he said to her, Madame, quelle honte, shame. What if I had been someone else? <laughs> only a Frenchman. And a French aristocrat as well, hopefully, <laughs> of, the, of the period. Could handle Super. a situation like that with such uh, <laughs> je ne sais quoi. Um, David Niven, he's famously, um, uh, famously good at, at faux pas, isn't he? It's quite my favorite faux pas story. David Niven was, of course, the wonderful English actor and in real life a, a charmer and a gentleman down to his tiptoes. But uh, <laughs> one night he was at a, a fancy party. He was chatting with a man he'd just met. And, the, and they were standing at the foot of a grand staircase. The two ladies appeared at the top and started to walk down. David nudged his companion and said, I say, that has to be the homeliest woman I've ever seen. The man stiffened, said, that's my wife. David said, uh, I, I meant the other one. That's my daughter. <laughs> David just said, I didn't say it. <laughs> in our household we, we call that the david niven defense <laughs> uh tell me uh in a wider sense what does the faux pas tell us about uh about human nature would you say uh, Chris? well i, I guess t to me faux pas are reminders that uh however much the human race dresses itself up you still can't take it out. I, I find something. Uh, I find something touching, almost endearing, in these examples of our frailty. Because I, I think they reveal us for what we are, despite all our pretensions. Namely, fallible. Ultimately, you know, we're all players in what Balzac called la comédie humaine, the the human comedy, and our humanity never never seems more human than those unrehearsed moments when we put a foot wrong and slip on banana peels, largely of our own strewing. Aquinas called man the risible animal. He meant risible because we laugh. I, I would add risible too by virtue of our talent for occasioning laughter. You, 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 you certainly recall that, as, uh, as, uh, that Roman generals who were achieved great glory were accorded the honor of a triumphal procession, and they would ride on a chariot with, with, you know, with, with great fanfare and flowers. And, and behind them would, stood a slave whispering into their ear amidst all this fanfare, remember that you are mortal and that all glory is fleeting. Well, this this must have been very annoying for the generals. I wonder if they ever said to the slave, "Will you please shut up? I'm trying to enjoy my I'm trying to enjoy my triumph here." Exactly. To which, but to which the slave might reply, "You're fabulous. I'm just saying, watch your step." <laughs> Actually, me, if indeed. it were my triumph, I think I'd have tossed the slave off the chariot. Yeah, no, a sudden push <laughs> might be the answer. Exactly. A, good, a good push. <laughs> a um, scrape. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I, 
I think this is a moment for for telling you about my um, my worst faux pas, which was at a party, and um, and I knew these uh, these two people, and I wondered. Um, I couldn't remember the names of either of them, but but uh, I wanted to introduce them to each other and and did, uh, and didn't ask whether they knew one another. And uh, Lord Longford said, "I have been married to Lady Longford now for some sixty years," um, <laughs> uh, and uh, but this is this shows his in, his innate kindness. And he said, he said, "But on a deeper level, do we ever really know anyone else?" <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was so kind, so kind to me. Anyway, as my face went bright puce, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> that's, now, uh, that's a great savoir faire and aplomb there. Thank you. Uh, now, on these uh, on these podcasts, I sometimes ask a um, uh, couple of questions. The first one is, um, what's your favourite historical counterfactual? Have you got a what if that you particularly uh, enjoy about history? Well, I just read an extraordinary book by a French woman named, I think, Laurent Binet. You've probably heard of it. It's called Civilizations. And it's, it's, it's a 300-page um, novel, technically. But uh, she's a historian. Uh, or she's a fellow historian, I should say. <laughs> and, it, and in which she sort of reverses things to the point that the conquistadors come over, get conquisted themselves, and Atahualpa, chief of the Incas, ends up invading Europe and taking over the Holy Roman <laughs> Empire. It's really it's it's an it's a marvelously precise piece of counterfactual history. I mean, with uh, uh, the detail in it is is just uh, is just stunning. I, I I I urge you. I urge our listeners after they buy your next your new book and my <laughs> new book to buy civilizations. <laughs> That's a very good one. And 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 what uh, is there an actual history book or a biography that you're reading at the moment? Uh, yeah, just last night I started uh, Alan Guelzo's, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Gel- biography, biography of uh, Robert E. Lee. In fact, uh, there's a, a, an effusive blurb at the very top of the back by someone named Andrew Roberts. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. It really it's is a very, very good. Absolutely brilliant yeah. book. He's uh, And he begins... I think the first, I'll, I'll muff the actual wording, but the first sentence is, so how do you write the biography of a traitor? And then he goes about answering it very elegantly. I'm only on, you know, chapter uh, two, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary book. I think Good it's that. the best book, best biography I've read since I read your biography of Napoleon about a month ago. <laughs> which is <laughs> extraordinary you. but i do not know how you knock these these out every well, year I mean, we might I, well uh, we <laughs> thank you for the praise we might well have to edit the praise out of the uh ultimate oh, no, recording no, i no, have to no. say <laughs> the, praise is, the praise is what this um, is all about i see this podcast for what it really is <laughs> <laughs> now on a serious uh a serious and uh and, and sad note indeed um P.J. O'Rourke, your um, your longtime and good friend, uh, died recently. Uh, there was universal lamentation right the way across uh, across the globe, really, about this uh, this 
this brilliant man's uh, life. I wonder if you'd just like to uh, give us a few um, memories of uh, of him, a eulogy to him, essentially. Uh, well, this is uh, impromptu. I, 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 I wrote, I was asked by the New York Times to write an appreciation. Uh, there were uh, three uh, uh, pieces in the New York Times, and there was an extraordinary outpouring um, P.J. O'Rourke was, um, the, the Wall Street Journal called him the funniest writer in America. And he was, he was incapable of not being aphoristic. Uh, in my appreciation of him, I used the word hyper-aphoristic, and I got a lot of emails saying that people, they had to look it up. But, I mean, if you pick up a, a, a book of, uh, of quotations in particular, a book of, of comic quotations, PJ is right up there with Oscar Wilde and Dorothy Parker. I mean, in terms of sheer numbers, he was simply that way. He was also, uh, but he, he was very far from just a funny man. He was what, he was our generation's Mencken. Uh, and he was he was deeply learned and deeply read, and bright as a whip. He was he was a serious. He was a funny man, but he was also a serious man in the sense that uh, uh, Mencken might have used uh, the German word for that, uh, eine Ernstemann. Uh, I mean, he was he was someone to be reckoned with, and I think his. Uh, he he wrote. Uh, I teased him because uh, uh, I, I I just finished my twentieth book, and I think I was I was one book up on him. He, he wrote nineteen, <laughs> but I have no illusions about whose books are going to still be in print a uh, hundred years ago. A hundred years from now. Not necessary. Now uh, I can praise you if you want, uh, Chris. Uh, That's maybe not yours and PJ's. Uh, no, no, but no. he was he was also into the bargain. A, a lovely, lovely man. He had he had, uh, and he was very well known uh, in your neck of the woods, across the herring pond in England. He was. Uh, um, so his his loss is great. He was seventy four. He was diagnosed with an inoperable lung tumor. On December twenty third, in his email, he told me that, and he, he had parenthesis and a Merry Christmas to you too, Doc. <laughs> and uh, and he was gone uh, two months later, so at least his suffering wasn't prolonged. But uh, the um, the uh, the delight uh, that he brought to all of us uh, will uh, will will live on uh, long after his departure. Christopher Buckley, thank you very much indeed for giving us this uh, brilliant disquisition, historical disquisition on the uh, on the faux pas. Thank you so much. Thank you, my fellow historian, Andrew. <laughs> thank you for listening. Please join me on our next episode when we'll go in a very different direction and speak to Dr. Henry Kissinger. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.